Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we are joined by a guest who is uh, about hip deep in the fintech world, Lex Sokolin has served as the Global Director of Fintech Strategy at Autonomous Research, which is an equity research uh, firm for institutional investors. He's been the Chief Operating Officer of Advisor Engine, which is a digital wealth management platform. Before that, he served uh, at Wall Street banks, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and Lehman Brothers. Uh, that's a lot of words to say that there isn't probably a game in the fintech world that uh, Lex doesn't know about. So I'm really excited to talk to him today. Lex, how are you doing? Thanks a lot for being here. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I wondered, uh, I know you're in London now, but I wondered if you could kind of take us back for, for listeners. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? And uh, what, was your, what was your family doing at that time? I am in London now. I've been here about five years. There's a great financial services, but also fintech and, and crypto scene here, a lot going on. But I grew up in, um, in New York City uh, and um, all, over, all over New York City, uh, first in a little bit in Brooklyn and then Queens. I went up to college to, to Amherst and, and then came back down and spent about, I'm guessing about a decade more uh, in New York, enjoying all the pleasures of the the Lehman bankruptcy and kind of the beginning of the fintech scene in the US with um, investment management getting getting automated. It was uh, exposure to pretty much all the different things that go on in a metropolis, you know, so whether it was the museums and the art, and I got hooked on a lot of digital art through that, or whether it was internships in, you know, the investment banks and kind of just seeing the the image or like the weight of the skyscrapers, I think a lot of that was a big magnet for me. Yeah, I can't imagine as a child that would be really sort of imposing, but in a good way, I, I would think. And also sort of just like, wow, look at look at what's possible here in this, this amazing city. Before New York City, I, I believe you were born in, in Moscow. And do you, do you remember that as well before you moved um, over to the United States? Yeah, I was, I was born in, uh, in Moscow and I left, my family left in um, right after the wall fell. So I was 10 years old. I have some stark memories of of Russia, um, and I I have not been back since since '94. Those memories are of certainly a lot of good family memories, but also hyperinflation. I remember, you know, the cost of bread going from ten to a hundred to a thousand to ten thousand in the course of months. Wow! I remember the the violence in the country at the time of the transition into capitalism out of a centrally planned economy and tanks in the streets. And, you know, it's ghastly to me. Uh, I mean, it's just chilling to see what's happening in that region now with really similar sort of echoes. Was that Boris Yeltsin that took the country from the planned economy into some sort of capitalism? Yeah, it was... Uh, 
I know Gorbachev was there, I think, when the wall <laughs> fell, but then I think it was Yeltsin, right? Yeah, so Gorbachev was the premier of the party who brought in Western concepts, and in particular, freedom of speech and an attempt to rebuild the economy. He did it in a way that relied on the Chicago School of Economics, sort of the very hard transition concept. You know, so there is a, the economies of Eastern Europe, when they opened up after the collapse of the USSR, some of them went gradually. You can look at Poland as an example, and some of them went hard right into fully floating markets. And I think Russian GDP fell by something like 80%, you know, oh, wow. uh, just just Massive. entirely decimated because the the market structure and the legal system and all of the things that actually make capitalism work weren't weren't there. So it was highly economically destructive to the to the country which led to, you know, alcoholism, violence, crime, all the things that you do not want. Yeah. Boris Yeltsin came to power after Gorbachev. So Gorbachev was the one who initiated the attempted transitions. And then Yeltsin was, you know, kind of the symbol of the collapse of the USSR and the first president of the Russian Republic. So a different sovereign with Gorbachev kind of exiled. He was in power until the late 90s and then transitioned to Putin, who has been on top of it since. Ever since, yeah. Do you think going through that stuff and, and seeing like the hyperinflation you mentioned at, at such a young age influenced you into wanting to be an, an economist? Or is that something that you think if you had had a different upbringing, you might've gone a different way? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's a combination of things. And I'm the head economist at Consensus, which is a Web3 company focused on user adoption of, of Web3 decentralized applications by people, so through the MetaMask wallet, and then developers building applications on the other side through tools like Infura and so on. Cryptoeconomics in this context is a fairly creative practice. It's almost like an experimental practice. Normally, economists study the past and they can't really run experiments unless you're in charge of the Federal Reserve or you know some country's treasury. Whereas in Web3 and in DeFi with tokens, there's a lot more control over ecosystems and you can create financial incentives for people to behave certain ways and you can play with money supply and see the outcomes of those experiments. And so, you know, for me, I think, it's been a windy road into this positions. I mean, I do have economics training that I got in college. I have a JD and an MBA from Columbia. So I've, I've done some grad schooling, but I don't have a traditional, you know, like PhD path into wanting to do deeply quantitative economics backwards of history and so on. But rather, I've always really enjoyed the innovation on the frontier of financial services. I really like looking at systems as these structures and understanding them, trying to, trying to create models of them, trying to describe them, trying to figure out if you pull on this side, what happens on the other side. And so I think I appreciate these token design systems as, as well as broader financial services, as well as the, the fintech industry's kind of macro structures. I have a pretty good intuition for how they work. And growing up, I think the instability for sure of, of that period, but then also my experience with Lehman Brothers and watching an investment bank implode and much of the US economy implode as a result, I think just taught me that you know, underneath it, there is no sort of, there's no institutional or authoritarian truth. There's no sort of deeper anything. There's no fundamental whatever. 
There's just stuff that people make up and then agree on. And that's very, that's very powerful because I've also got this kind of desire to architect, you know, so to see a system, but then to architect some solution or some sort of web or an art piece. Like I grew up doing a lot of visual art. So for me, it's almost this, this creative act. It just happens that the the, the medium in which the creative act happens is this kind of economic medium or fintech medium. And I, I think that's what's interesting and compelling for me about it. Yeah, and your point about, you know, things just not really having any real foundation, I think has only been proven more true for what we saw like in the Trump administration and a lot of the, the norms that people just expected of politicians and public figures and institutions as well, just sort of once they were tested, just didn't seem to have anything behind them. But I, I wonder too, like, so you saw, you know, the, you mentioned a lot of the instability and the kind of show of force and violence and things in Russia, and then coming to to New York in the '90s, that must have been quite a counterweight to that experience. How, how do you recall that sort of affecting your worldview and what you thought of what was possible? It's an existential question. It's it's a hard question. You know, th- there were waves of immigration into the states since the the beginning of the country there there is no country but for immigration there are you know the indigenous people that were here did not have <laughs> the american nation as such and the moment the american nation started it was immigrants building on top of immigrants in layers of people kind of seeking opportunity thinking about manifest destiny and and the gold rush and so on that's woven into the American character. And I think it's why certainly in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, it was such a beacon of, uh, it, was, it was such a canvas, I think, for, uh, for people who want, who want a better life. That certainly was, was the case for us. The immigration experience is, is quite, you know, it's quite different and I think can be quite difficult for, depending where you come from and for what reasons, you know, and for us, it was, it was in political in large part. Were your parents uh, professionals or what were they were they able to do what they did in Russia over here in the United States or did they kind of have to remake themselves? Uh, not for a while and with fairly substantial damage to at least one of their careers. My father is a very technical engineer. Uh, he designs helicopter transmissions and he was able to um, continue that. Wow, cool. <laughs> Although it took him several years before he was able to get into the right role and then my mother is an architectural historian. Just the entire market structure of what it means to to study art and to practice it is very different in the in a Western world versus what it was in Soviet system. Because in the Soviet system, propaganda and kind of grand gesture was power. So you know, building the biggest building or creating a national monument was far more important than you know owning a bank. One is for accountants, the other one is for national heroes of politics. So you, you can see the kind of the, the gap, right? Whereas if you appear in a capitalist system, people get paid for value they create, which is very different. You can have whatever grand designs you want of propaganda, but that's gonna be hard to compare with Elon Musk building rockets or, or Tesla's. Yeah, great point. Uh, there's definitely an adjustment for them professionally. There's a language barrier. You know, but for me, luckily, I was young enough that I was a sponge. I think I tried as, as hard as possible to assume an American identity and absorb as much as I could. And I ended up going to a great public school in, in New York called Hunter College High School, which was full of kids like me. You know, so if you know Stuyvesant or Bronx High, Hunter, all the same. 
Well, I got to say, you don't have a Russian accent at all. I wouldn't really ever uh, think, you know, maybe unless, except for your last name. Congrats on that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fortune. And I'm sure you might not think about it this way, but it seems very formative, you know, to, to watch your parents go through that and struggle and make sure that everything was okay for, you know, so that they could give you a different life. It's hard, I think, sometimes to, to realize like how the, that, that formative, like you said, you're a sponge. It probably just all kind of came into you. Well, I just wanted to say, talking about grand gestures, I, I've been to Moscow and I remember the day I stepped foot into Red Square was just absolutely blew me away. Not to take anything away from what you said, but just the grandness of it and the scope with, you know, the uh, the Church of Spilled Blood and then you've got the National History Museum, the Kremlin. It's just, it was just something that just literally took my breath away. It was, it reminded me of the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. It's just kind of something you need to see with your own eyes. They definitely know how to do grand gestures. <laughs> and there are a whole number of absurdities, right? So for example, the and I don't remember this at, at all. This is just a, a retold memory that I've read about. The Moscow subway is like palatial. Yes. It's a wonder of the world, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the New York subway is an industrial grind full of rats and squirrels fighting to the death. A nightmare. You know, and like <laughs> you would be mistaken about which is a good place to live in that is prosperous and which is a, a a destitute place to live in and is poor based on that. But that's the power of the physical space and the propaganda around it. It's incredibly impractical to make a palace out of your subway if you have people that are starving. I think that's the difference between the the cathedral and the garden, right? So you can build an enormous, beautiful cathedral and centrally controlled only, only only a centrally hierarchically controlled process can give you a cathedral, whatever that cathedral is, whether it's landing on the moon for the first time or whether it's a literal cathedral. Alternately, you have the system of the garden where trees grow and, and compete for resources, which is natural light or water or whatever it is. And and a lot of the US, although it's it's not really true, but at least the myth of the US is that it's a garden. You know, that anybody can, if they're smart and thoughtful and uh, uh, lucky enough, can, can, can grow into a powerful big tree and bloom and all of this stuff. Of course, there's a lot of mechanism that is invisible that amends that, but I think at least the metaphor is of the extremes is helpful. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, America obviously has many, many problems and has had many problems throughout its existence. But I, I'll hear from even people from, you know, London or the UK, you know, that the amount of opportunity here and, and that's not necessarily bounded by class and other things like that where, that are, you know, parts of Western Europe still have that today, I think is the one thing that, that really does sort of stick out to people and, and makes them want to be here. For, for all sorts of different reasons. I would love to talk to you about your experience at Lehman going through the financial crisis because that was formative for me in my reporting career. I, I was working at Bloomberg News at that time. My oldest son was born in July of 2008. So it was from mid-July until about early September, I was on paternity leave and just like totally was my first kid. My wife and I were just, you know, it just swamped with stuff and he wasn't sleeping and all sorts of things. So I was kind of tuning out the rest of the world. And then I kind of come back to it. The first day back, I get this assignment, go down to Lehman Brothers. They're like, people are getting fired and they're leaving with boxes full of their stuff, you know, like go try to get interviews. I think this was their office down by the New York Mercantile Exchange, like in downtown, uh, right on the water there. 
So that was, you know, and then obviously the, the effect of, of everything, uh, the, the financial crisis on, on the world economy and all the effects that it had going forward was something that became, you know, a central part of my reporting job. But I'd love to hear what it was like to be inside there at that time from you. A lot of people kind of say that the canary in the coal mine was when the two Bear Stearns hedge funds, I think, blew up in the summer, uh, late summer of 2007. I think they were real estate investment hedge funds. And then if you were really paying attention, you were like, oh shit, you know, things about to get crazy. <laughs> but most people, you know, it didn't kind of hit until about a year later. But how do you remember that period? Did you understand that part of the market or were you focused on what you were doing for, for Lehman at that time? I'm so deeply grateful for having had that experience. You know, I was <laughs> I was very close to missing it and I didn't. I started there in 2006 and then 2007 was still a, a strong year and it was 2008 that the earth opened up and swallowed everybody whole. I was a, an analyst in a strategy group, so kind of a former McKinsey little pod that was attached to the investment management business. Lehman had, as most Investment banks had three big businesses, capital markets, investment banking, investment management. And Lehman had just bought Neuberger Berman in 2003. I joined in 06. And so the strategy for the bank was in large part following in the footsteps of Goldman Sachs and diversifying into, into just AUM and, and getting into- Assets under management. Yeah, yeah just getting out of- Wealth management in general more? Or? Yeah, wealth wealth and asset management. So Neuberger is, I think, is an independent company now after the bankruptcy. But Neuberger was a 200 some billion plus asset management firm. So they they took money and they, they had portfolio managers. And then we also had a 150 billion plus wealth management division, private wealth and institutions. And then there was a bunch of private equity also that sat alongside it. And, you know, culturally, the investment management business is very different from banking and is very different from capital markets. And so, I mean, we were in a building 399 Park, which is on in the 50s on, on the yeah. east side and the banking bit was by Times Square. And I remember getting trained with the investment banking class and being like, oh man, did I avoid some personal disaster, you know, by uh, by not going that by route. Having to work in Times uh, Square. No, no offense intended, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Even though I was, I was junior, you know, I had uh, a really interesting seat, which gave me exposure to management decisions, strategy and management decisions, and kind of I ran the spreadsheets to track the business and, and kind of all the pricing analysis and so on. The interesting part for me was, I don't think on, on the wealth side, we really saw it coming. We didn't see what capital markets had done, you know, to put it, to put it like that. Very few people did. That's true. But I do remember the human reactions and those have really stuck with me. You know, and there's different anecdotes that informed a bunch of my career decisions. So I remember the bran the branch manager of the New York office, somebody who's running 80 financial advisor teams and they're generating whatever it is, 100 million of the firm's revenue. Actually, I don't remember, probably closer to 500 million of the firm's revenue. Uh, and Lehman's stock went from 100 down to 20. It was a big drop. The rumor is that there's a deal with uh, Asia sovereign funds and everything's fine. And we've got this guy who's probably in his late 60s pulling 10 million a year because I know everyone's comp at that point, walking around saying, great deal, buy of the century, 20 bucks. And these are the people that are the professionals advising the, the wealthy 
and institutions on their asset allocations who are doing nothing but staring at the markets. <laughs> and this is their boss telling them an investment decision, which is 100% absolutely wrong. Right. I'm not gloating. It's, it's, not, it's not crocodile tears for bankers. It's just the human nature is such that you will just, it's impossible in the moment to see, no matter how qualified you are, no matter what information you have, just, just plain wrong. And so that, that's, that stuck with me. Another one that stuck with me. Did you ever have, oh yeah, go ahead, please. I've got, I got a lot of these, so you're welcome to cut me off yeah, anytime. No, I, uh, totally, no, no, I would love, I love these stories, please go on. Another one that I remember is, you know, I was, I was keeping a spreadsheet of the revenue that was melting because every, every day since the bankruptcy was announced or the fact that there was no bailout coming from the treasury was, was clear, teams just were leaving. I don't know which animals are, can't quite think of which animals are, you know, carnivorous and just eat each other when one is wounded, but UBS and Morgan Stanley <laughs> were eating us alive. I mean, was the, the, the firm was there. It was in acquisition processes with Barclays and a bunch of others. And UBS and Morgan Stanley were buying out- Picking, pe picking yeah. people off yeah. left and right. With the best yeah. first, of course. I'm keeping the spreadsheet of, of the revenue kind of melting every day, 20% every day. At some point, we get to this problem of uh, a bunch of our top clients were also holding auction rate securities. I might be conflating time periods, but I don't know if you remember around that time, there were also auction rate securities, which were this instrument, this fixed income instrument, kind of like a money market fund, but the interest rate on the money market fund is set through an auction, like this arcane auction process. You know, it's like 1% or 30 basis points or whatever. Never in the history of these things has there not been an auction that's cleared. And of course it's 2008. Okay. So the auctions do not clear. So a thing that you thought was fully liquid, I mean, it's a little bit like Terra, you thought was fully liquid actually is worth now zero because you can't, like it's not rolling forward. The underlying instrument's supposed to roll forward through these auctions. And so a bunch of people who thought that they were allocated to cash were actually allocated to a structured derivative. And the lawsuits started to get aimed at, at the banks. And I remember running a spreadsheet of like, okay, which clients of the firm are clients of investment management, investment banking, and capital markets? And like, who are the best clients that we just have to bail out? And I think like we, I ran that analysis. We got through 20 names that we were able to give balance sheet to. Mm -hmm. And 21 next week was uh, in the Wall Street Journal suing the firm. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a fantastic experience. It's great. I was so liberated of any affiliation to to investment banks after that. that that's yeah that's a great take i don't think you would hear that very often i wondered did you ever feel fear i remember i think it was when tarp was going through congress and it failed and i was watching you know i was at bloomberg i'm watching bloomberg terminal the vote fails and i swear to, i was watching the s p it just went straight down and just down and down and i was like jesus christ like in seconds it had lost i, I don't know how many it was a huge percent. Yeah. That was the one time where I was like, oh, it, it felt sort of like something happening in on a TV show or something to me, you know, before yeah. that. But then that was a moment where I was like, Jesus, this, this might crash the entire economy. So I wondered, did you ever have a moment of fear like that? Or did you, were you just sort of like on the inside and knowing like these guys, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but they're like, they're kind of getting what they deserve. <laughs> I don't think there's any difference at that moment of time between Lehman 
or Bear or Morgan or Merrill. I think Merrill Lynch was more underwater than Lehman. I'm biased, obviously. I think the reason Lehman failed is that he walked into a room full of people from Goldman Sachs in the treasury. Uh, Goldman Sachs was running Goldman Sachs and the treasury and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch or something like that. And I think it was just personal. And, you know, that's that's my sense of of the outcome. They made sure Bear Stearns got sold to JP Morgan. Yeah. But then Lehman was sort of like, that's a bridge too far. I yeah. Think. And like you were saying, it's really interesting that mark to market issue was so, like so prevalent in all of that. It's just because people had no idea what anything on their books was worth anymore. And I think that's what just really terrified folks. The transparency wasn't there. I think the, I think a lot of software today would, would have prevented that the, the how unknown the risk was. I think we, we now have a lot of technology to actually get those exposures. And of course, if they're in crypto, it's it's even easier to, to understand what the exposures are. Although, you know, not in the case of Three Arrows Capital. Uh, so I think to that experience and I, and- There still are black boxes. Anything that's a human relationship is, is a black box. And after Lehman, I spent six years building a robo-advisor and saying things like active investing is, is bad for you and you should have a passive asset allocation portfolio and nothing else. You know, And I didn't just say it, I, I believed it exactly for the reason you described, which is that you were lucky to lose 40% of your, of your assets and it could certainly be a lot more. Last thing I'll ask you about the financial crisis, uh, from somebody who lived it, what's the best movie you've seen about it? <laughs> the most true to life, maybe? I'll dodge the question and say there is a great Lehman Brothers play that was on in London. Oh, really? That traced the history of the firm from the actual Lehman Brothers who ran a bank and, and lent to the town and, and how that all came about. It's a fantastic play. It was it was very moving and it made you feel wistful for Dick Fold and brokerage, <laughs> which I never thought I would again. But I guess art elevates it. Well, does it go from that period with the bro- the actual brothers yeah. all the way to the crash, or is it just sort of about the founding? Everything, yeah. So it's it starts with you know the the troubles they had and how they ended up in banking because it started out as like a store. Um, oh, okay. And then so it spans that whole the, time. the growth of it, and okay. you know, there's complicated generational stuff that happened and political battles to take over whether it was going to be an investment bank or whether it was really going to be like a capital markets trading company. There's lots of great stuff around that, but it feels these days almost, I wouldn't, it's not, it's not a footnote, but that type of Wall Street firm, I mean, it seems unimaginable uh, to continue. It seems out of this world to, to, yeah. to remember what it was like to work there, if, if that means anything. I'll answer my own question. I think a margin call was the one that I thought would just ring as true as, as I, I mean, I was on the outside obviously as a reporter, but if anyone wants to check out a movie about the financial crisis, I liked margin call quite a bit. So I was reading and, and listening to, to podcasts you've done. And after Wall Street, like you just said, you went into fintech pretty heavily for, for many years, um, created your own firm and then worked you know, at a high level at a couple of others. And I read, you said at some point, you know, that it just, it, you felt like they were getting it all like not wrong, but they just weren't quite hitting the mark. And it, it occurred to me that fintech is really about the front end. You know, it's about how does a user now interface with a bank or, you know, a lending app or something, you know, Marcus on their phone or, you know, Robinhood where you can have commission-free trades. 
Whereas blockchain and Web3 is all really about a fundamentally new underlying technology, and it's something that underpins everything. So in, in fintech, you've got a nice new shiny front end, but it's still the legacy banking system with all its creaky, you know, parts and stuff. And with, you know, but with blockchain and Web3, like it's a brand new engine. And, and I wondered if, if you'd agree with that and if that's something that sort of attracted you to it. it it's totally right. And I think for me, it goes back to trying to find the edge of change and the parts of, of that edge that I believe in, and then trying to project a rigor. Like, if this is true, what could it be in the best way, but rigorously, not in sort of a fantasy hallucination, but rather like, what system could we really build on top of this? If fintech People will say, oh, well, you know, the payment rails have always been fintech or NASDAQ, we've always been fintech and so on. And I think that misunderstands the trends a little bit. For me, the fintech genesis moment was mint.com. And I think for other similarly situated people, when they saw what mint did, it kind of clicked. So mint was a company that was sold, sold, I don't remember when it was founded, but it was sold in 2007 for about $170 million to Intuit, the tax company. And what Mint did was uh, sit on top of bank data. So it did data aggregation through um, kind of backdoor screen scraping of people's accounts. You give them your, user, your username and password and they pull it all together. You know, Today you can call it embedded finance or open banking or PSD2, blah, blah, blah. But it was data aggregation and they gave you a great visualization of your stuff, much better than your bank does. And on top of it, they started to layer a little bit of financial planning, a little bit of lead generation for various credit card products and so on. But they blew up to a million users for a finance product, for an, a web finance product. And literally nobody else had done that, nobody. What clicked for me is that the Silicon Valley approach, which at the time is web two kind of Facebook software in the browser, the Silicon Valley approach can be applied to finance. And all of the things today that are obvious and boring and, you know, neobanks, robo-advisors, digital investing, digital lending, that stuff was just starting to react to the concept that you can use the web for distributing financial products. You know, the only move we all really had was to, to build front ends that you know, I think about it as manufacturing and distribution. You've got the storefront where people buy sandwiches, and then you've got the factory or the back of the store where the, the sandwich is made. Yeah. And so the the store, you're, you're changing from the bank branch to the mobile phone. That's very reductive, but it's also accurate for maybe 80% of the things that people talk about. I think fintech, including some of the things that I did with my company, like we were in the Betterment Wealthfront and then kind of investnet cohort of things. I think we we did a lot to wire traditional manufacturing that includes investment custodians, it includes portfolio management software, core banking software, things that no person should ever have to learn, to wire that into web user experiences and try to understand the consumer behaviors about how they deal with financial products, why they deal with it, and just figure out the ways to bring finance to the internet experience. I think what blockchain and Web3, and in particular Web3, so Ethereum and other programmable blockchains do, is they they give you a new place, they give you a new factory, they give you a new manufacturing layer for every kind of financial service, whether it's 
payments or whether it's banking or whether it's investments or whether it's capital markets or insurance, because all of that is written in software and you can run, you can write any software that you want. It's a completely new chassis for manufacturing. To me, it is so, so clearly, you know, correct because the old chassis is made of scotch tape and broken dreams. Yeah. No, it's written in COBOL too. Yeah. We already, yes, I'm being generous. But yeah, we, we already have the fintech distribution bit, right? The how should it look in the phone? How should it look in the browser? We already have it. And it was just Spotify selling CD-ROMs. It was Netflix selling video cassettes. You know, for a while, Netflix actually did used to send out video cassettes. Oh yeah, I used to get them. Until streaming became the right mm-hmm. thing. And so I think to me, it's it's super obvious that, you know, big tech and fintech distribution will end up sitting on top of Web3 manufacturing. And, and likely a lot of Web3 native financial products will, you know, will become much easier defaults for people to interact with. So earlier when you were, you were speaking about your love of systems and thing and and how everything interoperates. Um, it, I was thinking, oh man, Joe Lubin must love you because <laughs> Joe, I think, thinks in very similar ways. That's the head of consensus for anyone who doesn't know. Can you tell me a little bit? Obviously, you must have been aware of Bitcoin first, and then Ethereum and, and other smart contract platforms as you were going through your fintech kind of um, journey. But w- what was it that sort of drew you? out of that world and into the Web3 world and, and the, the Ethereum world more specifically. Absolutely. And I try to smooth the story because in my mind, it's like, this is all sort of a, con- this is along a continuum, you know, there's like a consistency to the things I believe and they have all this stuff in common. And so, you know, it's just continuing to choose for novelty. You know, I, that's been for me a guide of trying to select what I work on. I mean, I have, I have enough faults and, and interests and kind of ego, but I, I try to make decisions in my career around novelty. I think that creates surprising and interesting outcomes. More specifically around consensus and Bitcoin, any entrepreneur will tell you when you've got a company, there's you just don't see anything else. Like it's invisible to you, it's unimportant. The only thing that's important is how you're gonna win. I was so focused on the digital investing stuff that I went to a conference in 2013 in the San Fran, and it was like a fintech conference. And somebody took a poll of how many people in the audience had a Bitcoin. And like half of the people there raised their hands. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I'm, I'm a fintech entrepreneur. This is, this is my area of expertise. And I, I don't have, I don't have one of these and what's going on. So you know, I came back, I think, uh, yeah, I opened, I opened up a Coinbase account and then uh, I was like, is my birthday coming up? And I told my wife, like, I just wanted Bitcoin. It was 500 bucks or no, 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 no. Sorry. It was 250. It was 250. We were grad students. So, you know, budget is different. And she was like, this is a dumb idea. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it for you. This, here's, here's half a Bitcoin. <laughs> That's what I got in 2013. So you, you can hold that over her forever, probably, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's almost 10 years pocket. later. And yeah. <laughs> when it was 60,000, you're like, oh man. Okay. So yeah, obviously you, you know about it, but then did you think it was interesting? Did you think it was usable or did it just kind of sit in your account? It, it just sat in my account. I knew some folks in the ecosystem and I knew some investors like I, like Ribbit Capital, I know was very excited about Bitcoin in that time. I was really interested in how you know, my main thesis at the time was that people hate financial products 
it makes them feel bad to interact with financial products, getting a mortgage, getting an investment account, getting an insurance policy, negative utility, you know, whereas social media, when you share pictures, it's positive utility, you get dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. If I'm like, go open an investment account, you feel bad. So my thesis was you need to create experiences that make you feel good about interacting with financial products and that create, remove the friction. And that was sort of my mental model. And so introduce into that the pitch that we're going to replace money with a thing no one can hold and the, the money supply will be replaced and you know the Federal Reserve is it's all a fraud and a scam. And it just, it didn't connect, uh, to put it lightly. Yeah. It's not that I was right or wrong. It was more that for me, I'm more interested in kind of the operating, the, the things you can build around money for people than I am in changing up the money, you know, like the power structure, like I can observe the power structure of the Fed and, and like why people had to issue the handouts or rather the, uh, you know, the distributions in COVID and all of that, like I understand it and, and I can track it and I can understand the impact. The question of what to do about it, my intuition is what experiences do you create for people? And so in 2016, I joined a firm called Autonomous Research, which is a equity research firm now part of Alliance Bernstein based in UK, London, which is what got me out here. It was a way for me to kind of step out of the the investing world and look at banking and payments and capital markets and really go broad across all the industries. And then also to get out of this, like put the old products into the phone mindset and ask what are the big platform shifts that are actually, what, what are the real things that are happening outside of just digitization at the edge. And so I joined Autonomous as a partner to stand up their fintech practice. My counterparts were large institutional funds that ran, you know, most of the investing in public financial markets. And then I also had a number of consulting clients who were the large publicly traded firms, you know, so their strategy teams or their boards and so on. It was like this fintech innovation angle. And I zeroed in, it's not, it wasn't hard to do it, but I zeroed in on artificial intelligence and machine learning, number one, blockchain and crypto, number two, and then AR, VR, number three. You know, and today, if you take that and you mush it together, you get the metaverse and so on. But you know, in 2016, it was fairly novel to say, like, what's the impact of this stuff on Wells Fargo and JP Morgan? Not, not a obvious question. You'd also ask questions like, and financial versus Apple, you know, or Amazon in finance versus JP Morgan underwriting versus lending club. So there were interesting questions, but the fundamental question was this platform shift question. And of the three vectors, AI, blockchain, and AR, VR, I ended up spending 20, 30, 50, 60, 70% of my time on uh, blockchain because it hit the ICO boom. I happened to build the database that Bloomberg used for reporting the the volume of ICOs. So Olga and I spent a lot of time on the phone updating that chart, and you know it got it got me like thousands of of hits because that was the chart for what the volume was. To me, it looked like this Cambrian explosion of you know creative destruction on Ethereum of all of these projects, this like venture ecosystem, and. It does not matter to me that it that it like collapsed. It really doesn't because I think the underlying thesis is 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 very right. And like you say, it's just the the infrastructure and its its maturity coming in waves. And so that's kind of how I got bit by the bug. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. Yeah, the scams and everything are very regrettable, but the fact is the ICO boom 
was such an important thing because this was capital creation without a bank being involved or a VC lender or anybody. It was peer-to-peer capital formation, um, which you know is taking a very traditional financial product and moving it into the digital peer-to-peer world, which I find fascinating. And it was only you know the beginning of that. If you then yeah. think about collateralized lending in you know in the Web three world, uh, lots of other things like cap- like another type of capital formation that is now being remade in this new image um you know that's what you need to be paying attention to i think because that's not going to go away and it's now the cat's out of the bag on that stuff and so it's it's too bad that there are you know so many scams and people lose so much money but there are fundamental shifts going on here that you shouldn't ignore for because of the bad stuff yeah and um there's a couple of distinctions i want to throw in there and i you know probably my lehman experience desensitized me to the the cycles, the collapses. And I think that capital losses and negative retail experience is awful. Uh, it's absolutely horrible. And so it is regrettable. But I think on separate from that, there are a couple of things to just that came out to me at that moment. And the first is you mentioned that the capital formation, this investment banking type function, that's true. That's the sort of YouTube-like quality of Ethereum you know, so in the way that YouTube generates video, Ethereum generates capital. Like who makes YouTube videos? The people. Who makes capital? The people. I think there is a different thing there, which is, yes, that that's a financial product, but more interestingly is the creation, it's the economic outcome. So the creation of companies and businesses that run on Ethereum and Web3. Even splicing the ICO data, you could see multiple different industries being represented from media to healthcare to telecom to financial services. And then you could see that for each of those, there was a diversity of various plays and attempts. So it just looked like a venture ecosystem. And a venture ecosystem is an economy. And an operating economy that has all this differentiation is, I mean, to me, it's a lot more interesting than Goldman Sachs making money on underwriting some debt offering. It's it's the fact that there's all these small businesses doing a fractal complexity of things because they have new tooling. And I think, you know, ICOs were venture decks with a lot of hopium. And then DeFi and NFTs were functional applications with throughput limitations and kind of some broken models. But the stuff worked. The next wave, if you extrapolate, is it's not going to go back. It's only going to go forward. And I think it's just, it's like the cat's out of the bag or, you know, Prometheus on the fire, right? That people now have this tool and they can build economies on, on top of this tool. And if you can build economies, then you can start creating a really interesting specialization and novelty. So you can have DAOs starting to replace the business unit people coming together and pooling their labor to create product because the the effort that goes into into that labor, a digital painting versus a physical painting, end of the day is the same labor. So you start getting these operating economies and then that economy has to be banked. People who are living in Web3 as the, their primary source of output, they're gonna need to also consume through it, right? So. DeFi protocols today, many of them are largely financial engineering, but they will become more and more of a of a banking system for the economy that grows out of Web3. And, and I think because the infrastructure is so different and alien, it has to be new. There's no way to 
to shove Wells Fargo or Morgan Stanley into it. It, it has to be uh, bottoms up. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, that's a great point. And speaking of stuff that works, the merge was just a little bit over a week ago, came off seamlessly. That's, of course, Ethereum's long stated plan to move from proof of work to proof of stake. I watched it live. It was at the same time, like extremely exciting and very boring. Um, <laughs> and I think, to be honest, I've been trying to compare it in my mind to anything that I've seen technologically. And I, I really can't find um, its equal because this was something that had been worked on by many different teams of you know hundreds of developers all around the world, thousands of other people giving them support to, to move this I think it's $165 billion worth of value right now on Ethereum seamlessly from one security system to another. And I mean, they pulled it off without a hitch. I just want to give it props and I would love to hear any thoughts you have on it. I'm really a bit baffled by the market reaction to the price of Ethereum dropping almost 20% since then. And I wondered if, if you have any thoughts on that. But first, I'd love to just hear, you know, maybe give a shout out to consensus or anybody about just what a technologically um, astounding feat that they pulled off. I echo your sentiments. I'm a geek for this stuff, but you know, it makes me think of the space missions and the anticipation people had about things going right. And of course, it's not us going in the physical space and it's not us going in a submarine in, in the water, but it is us exploring a a different space, a software space that, that we're creating. And I think that type of exploration, there's not a lot of places we can go, right? So our own psyche, our own creativity, our own models. Uh, I'm sure that if you reduce it in some abstract mathematical space, it's all the same. It is that kind of event. And I think the other part of it is that it's not like Bank of America acquiring Merrill Lynch and then being excited about reducing the number of portfolio management systems from 20 to five, right? Like, I'm sure that's hard and you want to move that money over and so on. But the excitement here is a public excitement. Like a well-functioning blockchain, I think, is a public good. The crypto space can be quite difficult and people can be toxic and, and having the the markets there is, is a ton of pressure for everybody all the time. One of the things that I've appreciated about Consensus and Joe in particular is the commitment to contribution to the space, like just the commitment and standing up the protocol. And yeah, the incentives are there for some of the people at Consensus, but you know, there's, a, there's a large protocol team that is focused on making sure that, that ETH works for, for years during the bear market, for example, and Fura was, was free for all of the apps that were accessing the network. And similarly, MetaMask continues to be free and so on. I do think that consensus has this uh, stewardship role. And of course, that cuts in a lot of directions, but it was really cool to see very bright evidence of of that contribution to the to the network. And then, what about did this price? The, there was a definitely a narrative out there among definitely on crypto Twitter that the merge is not priced into Ethereum. And I've I've written about this a little bit, and I I believe that narrative. I thought it was it was valid. We've seen the opposite in the days after the merge, and I'm I'm wondering how do you square that? Yeah, it's it's definitely frustrating. The most I can do in my role is to understand and try to describe get that description close enough that I believe it, you know, rigorous enough that I believe it. So it's impossible to talk about uh, ETH in isolation as an asset. I think modeling it in relation to its own supply, hold everything else equal, but you, you can't. 
So the large backdrop is the macro environment and the macro environment is the world's on fire and getting worse. People's housing costs are tripling, their incomes are eroding, you know, 10 to 15% a year, depending where you are in the world. So people are getting squeezed. Uh, all of the meme stock trading gains from Robinhood have been erased about three months ago. So people who made money in COVID are now down, are flat over the two years, up and then down and probably have lost more. So you've got horrible consumer sentiment. And then the mechanism of the rates rises and inflation haven't been fixed yet. So there's still huge uncertainty. That matters because funny thing about correlation, uh, all assets are correlated because they're held by people. So all assets have that correlation going to one because if you're out of money for your rent, you don't care if you're holding stocks, bonds, or crypto, you're selling you needed to make payments. That's why things go down in tax season. And especially when your holder base is retail, where a lot of the assets are kind of like consumer discretionary, meaning that I buy an NFT because I would have otherwise bought like cool sneakers or a video game, right? Instead, I buy an NFT and I play the video game of Twitter with my NFT and I troll people. So consumer discretionary, <laughs> how game. much are the average? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Depending on this macro environment, like people will spend or they will sell. You know, crypto has gone down a lot and is super sensitive to, to these macro gyrations. And then, you know, you switch into looking at one level closer, which is the game that the traders play. And the traders are playing the game of, is it priced in? Do most other people think it's priced in or, or not? And if they do, like, do I take the opposite reaction to that? Do I sell into the fact that other people are buying? Those games can get, they can get pretty recursive. So if people are expecting a proof of work airdrop, then you'll see lots of people buying ETH, but maybe people are overbuying it based on the dividend expected. And so maybe it's time to sell and so on. And then on top of that, you have the dynamics from the, the miners, right? So if your business just lost you know, half of its revenue because proof of work on Ethereum is something you no longer have or have access to, then maybe holding ETH isn't something you want to do on your balance sheet. You know, so it becomes out of scope. And so you have sales pressure. And, and that has a market impact kind of downstream from market structure. I really don't like taking that stuff very seriously because it, even though I, we, you know, we have to, and it has a huge impact, but it, it has nothing to do with the fact that the technology is better or that it's easier to build on or that, you know, there's like all these DAOs building things. It's just how people are positioning relative to each other. You know, and then I think there's there's one final layer down, which is to me the important layer, which is the post-merge inflation schedule, you know, the emissions going down from four and a half to 0.5% plus the burn on top and the, the concept that ETH can be deflationary and have negative 0.5 kind of contraction per year, something like that. That is all true and fantastic. It, it is describing the supply side of how much ETH is out there. If you can tell me one year. So just to jump in, that was always a big um, criticism from Bitcoiners about Ethereum. Is it like, you don't even know how much there is, you know, or it's like, it's going to go up forever. So I, just to give a little context there, that was a criticism that was leveled at Ethereum for quite a while. Absolutely. I think it's very uh, productive that there's a new monetary policy that is much less expensive for the protocols. So you're getting more security for less inflation, which is good. But, you know, look at Bitcoin. The supply side is known and it swings 
up and down, you know, 40 times up, 80% down, 30 t- 20 times up, 90% down, right? And the same with ETH. So that's happening not because of the supply side, it's happening because of demand for the currency. Until ETH is a $10 trillion money supply, which can no longer handle 70% down and 20% up swings. When it's at that size, I think the emission schedule and the supply side of it is going to be the main driver of of value accrual. So you'll be like, okay, well, my 5% interest on ETH, of which there's 10 trillion, I'm going to get 5%, give or take, at the end of the year. But with the current situation, the capital gains and capital losses just overwhelm people's experience with with that inflation. And so then the question is, well, what drives demand? One of those things is kind of the, the trading games I've described. And then the other thing that drives demand is the operating economy on Web3. Is there an operating economy or are we passing around things in a pyramid? And that's the make or break it kind of moment for me is like, is the financial stuff a derivative of the economy? Does it result from having an economy that works? Or is the financial stuff a zero-sum game and you know it's just like obfuscated? And so the thing that I'm zeroing in and trying to zero in on as much as possible, and in part why I've been focusing on crypto economics and try to take it seriously, is without a functioning economy, this thing's just not gonna work. And I think there's good evidence that there is growth that people are behaving in new ways and organizing in new ways. And I think there's also, it's fair to be skeptical, but that's kind of the exciting thing of being on the edge. Yeah, those are all fantastic points. The only thing that still, maybe it's, you know, we're short term here, it's only been a week and a couple of days. I would think that investors would recognize the the what the team of Ethereum developers did and, and the, the community was was amazing. And I would, I would bet long-term on that team and that community to, you know, do, they deliver on what they say, you know, it might not always be when they say they're going to do it, but they always do deliver. And and this one was by far the biggest thing that they'd ever accomplished in that regard. And I believe it was something like seven different clients were involved and, you know, they all worked together after the merge and, and it's been going um, very smoothly ever since. So, I just, you know, we talk about communities a lot and, and people, you know, where are the developers going? You know, is it Solana? Is it, you know, here or there? Ethereum has always had a huge advantage in that way. And after after this successful merge, I would just think that people would see that even, you know, that's even become deeper into, you know, the history and the, the accomplishments that, that the whole community has been able to achieve. But Lex, this has been really fascinating. Thank you for uh, all your time and for being so open about your past and, and telling us some great stories about the financial crisis and, and everything else. Uh, it's been it's been wonderful and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this, that's Lex uh, Sokolin. Uh, he's the chief economist at Consensus. And maybe just real quick, and I'll put this in the show notes, but tell, tell everybody, Lex, how they can get a, a hold of you or follow you or, or just keep up with what you're up to. Absolutely. Consensus.net or metamask.io for your for your crypto needs. I'm fairly easy to find. You can get me on Twitter at Lex Sokolin. And then I also write a newsletter called The Fintech Blueprint, where I cover a lot of these ideas. I'm excited for, for anyone to reach out. All right. Great. Again, thank you so much, Lex. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. 
Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decentral.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter, at Decentral. Have a great day.